South American country that shares borders with Chile, Bolivia, Ecuador, Colombia, and Brazil. It contains a bit of the Amazon rainforest and river, but also has vast plains and a portion of the Andes Mountains within its border, in addition to a fairly large coastline. In the country's largest city, which is also its capital city, Lima, there are just over eight and a half million people and there are about 33 million people across the entirety of Peru. Geographically, it's a little smaller than Mongolia and a tiny bit larger than Chad, which means it's fairly hefty in terms of raw size, but not one of the absolute largest countries on the planet. It ranks 19th largest, according to United Nations figures, and third largest in South America, after Brazil and Argentina. There's archaeological evidence, in the shape of hunting tools found in a cave, that indicate tool-making humans were living in what is today Peru at least 11,000 years ago. Evidence of settlements arise closer to 6,000 BC, and evidence of agricultural cultivation shows up over the course of the next 3,000 years. The groups living in this area at that time seem to have primarily produced early corn and cotton and to have domesticated ancestral versions of the modern llama, alpaca, and guinea pig. Larger cities began to pop up in the area around 2500 BC, and some very sophisticated ceramics, textiles, sculptures, canals, and even an observatory seem to have been produced around that same time. Though some of these discoveries are quite recent, and the dates are still a bit uncertain as a consequence of that recency. For a few thousand years, dozens of small to medium-sized civilizations developed in this region, mostly along the coasts and in the Andean Mountains. But then in the centuries leading up to 700 BC, there's evidence that a recurring series of El Nino-catalyzed floods and droughts, El Nino being a natural climate system that shifts weather patterns in some regions from time to time, and those floods and droughts killed off many of the coastal and lower-lying civilizations, forcing those who survived to assimilate into those cultures that lived in the mountains. And this resulted in a two-culture region, those cultures being the Huari and the Tiwanaku. These two cultures then fed into, and were succeeded by, a collection of large and powerful city-states, which themselves were then succeeded by the Chimu and the Chachapoya civilizations, the former becoming the largest civilization in the area for a few hundred years and sprawling in a thin line along the coastal region, and the latter developing in a smaller area of cloud forests, essentially rainforests, that have a near-constant low-lying cloud cover that looks and behaves like fog, and which makes everything in the area very spooky and mysterious. It is thought that between these two civilizations, they developed many of the precursor technologies and governmental systems that allowed the Incan Empire to arise and more or less take over the region. 
the Inca, which ruled about half of modern-day Peru, plus a fair bit of Ecuador, Colombia, Chile, and Argentina, are considered to have been one of the most technologically advanced civilizations in all of the Americas at the time. And their social advances are also considered to have been quite sophisticated, allowing them to grow and manage the territories over which they maintained rulership and or influence for the not quite 100 years that are generally considered to have been their heyday, around 1438 to around 1532. The economy of the Incan civilization was predicated at the base on collective ownership of the land and expansive and well-maintained transportation infrastructure that allowed messengers to rapidly get from one place to another, which made governing more feasible. But it also allowed trade goods to be quickly shuttled from city to town and back again, which is not an easy feat in an area so mountainous. The today quite well-known tourist attraction Machu Picchu is just one example of the many architecturally impressive things they were building in this area at that time, and the larger Inca Trail connected such places to each other, and in much of this region, that trail still does, despite damage caused by age and by all of those tourists. The date delineating the beginning of rule by the Inca is fuzzy, but the end of the Incan Empire is a bit easier to pinpoint because the end was marked by the landing of the Spanish in modern-day Peru in 1531, the subsequent arrival of Francisco Pizarro and his brothers in 1532, the coup launched against the Incan government by Pizarro that same year, and the collapse of their civilization's political structure by the end of that same year, mid-November 1532, in part because there were already conflicts within Incan society that Pizarro and his ilk were able to kindle into a civil war, in part because the Spanish had vastly more powerful military equipment, like guns and cannon, than the Inca wielded, and in part, in large part, because smallpox had been introduced into the region less than a decade earlier via Panama, which was itself afflicted because of the Spanish conquistadors who arrived there around that time, and the resultant smallpox pandemic when it reached Peru, because again the Incan Empire was big and an important node on the American trade network at the time, once it arrived, it worked its way through a society without any effective protection against it, killing their ruler, most of his family, and a huge chunk of the population of the Incan Empire as well. The collapse of the Incan Empire led to a period of confusion and backstabbing, during which local factions attacked each other, conquistadors, attacked each other, and Pizarro eventually climbed to the top of all of this conflict before being assassinated in 1541 by a faction of Spanish invaders led by another Spanish leader with a personal vendetta against Pizarro. A few years later, in 1545, after a brief civil war, Lima was founded by the Spanish as their new colonial capital in the region. 
The area was carved up into different territories by the ruling Spanish a few times. The locals were in some cases essentially, and in some cases literally, enslaved, and in both cases forced to produce locally flourishing raw goods for shipment to Spain, or for Spain to use as trade goods elsewhere. And that abuse of locals, fused with the wealth generated by local goods being shipped from the region, eventually made Lima a successful trade hub and home base for Spanish elites, with its own European-style universities and banks and luxury goods, well-maintained infrastructure, and military bases at the core of the city. Beyond Lima, though, the Spanish struggled to maintain control, and mostly left governance to local elites who ruled using the Spanish system of government, but typically didn't consider themselves to be Spanish or part of the Spanish Empire. They called themselves Curicas, and generally did what they could to maintain a sense of Incan history, tradition, and pride in the regions they governed. There were several large rebellions in the mid to late 18th century, mostly in regions far from Lima, and in landscapes where the locals, with their hard-earned knowledge of the local ecology, had significant advantages. This allowed them, using what amounted to guerrilla warfare tactics, to completely push the Spanish out of such areas for decently long periods of time, and though each rebellion was eventually put down by the Spanish, they did succeed in eroding support for Lima as Spain's South American hub, which then reduced the power and resources afforded to local Spanish leaders and in the wake of Napoleon invading Spain back in Europe in 1808, gave local Peruvian leaders an opportunity to hit their colonial government leadership hard. There were a couple of wars of independence in Peru, which over the course of just over a decade saw local Spanish-American landowners in the region ally with revolutionaries from other nearby colonies and former colonies to overthrow the local Spanish power structure, declare independence from Europe, and then figure out between themselves which areas would be ruled in which way. That latter point is important because one of the leaders, José de San Martín from Argentina, wanted a constitutional monarchy, a form of government that was becoming all the rage back in Europe and elsewhere in the Americas at that point in time, while Simón Bolívar, from Venezuela, wanted a republic. In early 1824, after the Spanish had been mostly booted from the area, Bolívar was named dictator of Peru, and after using those powers to reorganize the military and the infrastructure backing it, he kicked the rest of the Spanish military out of the country, a much larger force that, although defeated, did not finally surrender until 1826, two years later. Spain tried to take back this formerly held territory a few times later in the 1800s, but they finally recognized Peru's independence in 1879, after the second of such attempts failed. Much of the remaining 19th and early 20th century for Peru was shaped by infrastructure building and rebuilding, due to damage caused by wars over territorial lines with their South American neighbors, most of which were also new countries, formerly held as colonial territories, and all of which were also getting their ducks in a row and sorting out what kind of nation they wanted to be 
now that they were sovereign territories in the modern sense of the term. What I'd like to talk about today is Peru in the 20th and 21st centuries, and what a recent election says about where the country has been and where it might be headed next. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled Peru Socialist Castillo Confirmed President After Lengthy Battle Over Results. It's important to note, especially I think for U.S. listeners who perhaps have certain understandings of what socialist means and what political demographic that refers to, that the political spectrum in Peru is quite a bit different than it is further north in the States. And that is true of Peru's politics compared to many other places as well, not just the States, because of a fairly unique and very formative recent history. One of the leading candidates in the recent 2021 Peruvian general election, the one who eventually was declared the winner, Pedro Castillo, had parents who lived and worked in one of the poorest regions in the country, who were illiterate and who were basically kept as serfs to wealthy landowners who maintained a stable of manual laborers to whom they rented land that these workers then worked, a variation of the Spanish colonial model of tying locals to the land, forcing them to work that land for a pittance, all the while the wealthy overclass were the ones who primarily benefited from that labor. A Peruvian general named Juan Velasco Alvarado became the head of a military dictatorship that ran Peru from 1968 until 1975 after a successful bloodless coup by the military against then-president Fernando Belond. The Belond government was stuck in congressional deadlock, and military leaders were concerned that a then-quite-prominent socialist organization might use this gridlock, plus a series of other quite well-publicized instances of inequality and grift by those in power, to launch an uprising, something that had been recently attempted by two other groups in Peru in the wake of the Cuban Revolution leading to a whole lot of unnecessary death and destruction in the eyes of the military. Alvarado's military dictatorship was focused, then, on ameliorating some of what he considered to be the issues that caused such attempted revolutions, reducing inequality between the rich and the poor, creating social safety nets, and investing in strong local industry and infrastructure so that the country's economy was not weak and frail and prone to destabilizing forces like attempted socialist revolutions in the future. This was a very left-leaning military dictatorship then, if we were to describe it using common, modern, mostly Western political parlance. And it included the government takeover of industries ranging from mining to fishing to power generation to telecommunications. He reorganized all of these nationalized companies into a mega-conglomerate that had state-sanctioned monopolies in their relevant realms. 
and the poor were favored by all new legislation, which resulted in new educational opportunities for the oft-neglected indigenous populations in the country, which was about half the total population of Peru at the time, and a major agrarian reform project that, among other things, diversified land ownership so that about 15,000 properties, formerly held by a small collection of rich, land-owning families were bought up by the government and redistributed to about 300,000 families who were previously working that land as renters, which represented the second largest land reform effort in the history of Latin America, second only to post-revolution Cuba. The holistic approach taken by this leftist military dictatorship is generally called Peronismo, and it's what eventually gave Pedro Castillo's father his own plot of land, and thus the ability to eventually help his son get an education. In 1975, then-dictator Alvarado was himself overthrown, also in a bloodless military coup, after a period of immense and widespread poverty and unemployment, much of which seemed to be the consequence of some of the choices that were made under the Peronismo push, and some that resulted from adjacent efforts by the dictatorship, like the crackdown on the local free press and an unchecked economic inflationary spiral. He was replaced by another general, Francisco Morales Bermudez, who said he would introduce a second round of the successful in some ways but largely unsuccessful in many other ways, Peronismo effort. He failed in this effort, and a constitutional assembly was formed to revamp the existing constitution to see if that would help work out some of the kinks the system seemed to be experiencing. An election for a new president was also held, but in the build-up to that election, local communist groups formed a more formal organization called the Communist Party of Peru, also sometimes called the PCP, and later primarily called the Shining Path. The Shining Path was Maoist in ideology, which meant it wasn't just Marxist-Leninist and seeking economic equality and a change-up in who held the power of production. It was also, unlike most other types of communism, in favor of a so-called people's war a violent overthrow of existing political and power structures with a focus on guerrilla warfare and what today might be called terrorist acts in support of the eventual goal of provoking a cultural and industrial revolution in the country and then eventually globally. Some early demonstrations and street fights led by the Shining Path resulted in forceful pushback from the Peruvian military and one such demonstration saw 18 Shining Path protesters killed by the military, which led to even more radicalization within the group and more people joining the group in the face of what they saw as over-the-top violent pushback from the government. This is important to know in part because much of Peruvian history from 1980 until today has been shaped by this internal conflict between the Peruvian government, led by various people and groups, and the Shining Path. An estimated 50 to 70,000 deaths have resulted from this conflict thus far, 
and it's technically ongoing as of mid-2021, though at a radically lower, mostly political and less physical level today. This is also important to know, because although he once worked as a patrolman, defending primarily against members of the Shining Path, 2021 Peruvian presidential candidate Castillo rose to political prominence with the support of the Marxist-Leninist Free Peru Party. They chose him as a candidate and supported his elevation, though he has since distanced himself from that party. And he has said publicly that he is not a communist, even if many analysts consider his views that he has previously espoused to be quite far left and at times communist in ideology. That said, his views, even his recently iterated more pragmatic and thus theoretically more palatable to the middle of the road voter views, are not far left in the way many people in the European or North American tradition of leftist politics would recognize. He is very in favor of government spending and economic quality, for instance, but he's quite religious traditionalist when it comes to many social issues. He is against the legalization of abortion. He's against same-sex marriage, He's against euthanasia, against the promotion of gender equality in schools. His opponent in this election, Kaiko Fujimori, also has quite an interesting resume that is inextricably entwined with recent Peruvian historical happenings. Kaiko Fujimori is the daughter of Alberto Fujimori, the president of Peru from mid-1990 until late 2000. The elder, Fujimori, is, to put it lightly, a controversial figure in Peruvian politics, as he, first, is Japanese, some claim by birth, which would have made his presidency illegal, but the official record says that he's Japanese merely by ancestry, and second, because of his approach to governing, which became known as Fujimorism, thus named because of what his policies were oriented around, Mostly neoliberal economics, anti-leftist legislation, social conservatism, and hardcore opposition to LGBTQ rights, but also because of the personality cult that was built around him during his tenure in office. He was portrayed in some ways as the anti-leftist and the anti-shining path candidate, which again at this point in history especially was a very serious internal threat that could be pointed at if you wanted to associate someone on the more liberal side of politics with what amounted to a group of terrorists lurking in rural areas waiting to strike at any moment out of nowhere. When he first stepped into office, the country was stuck in an inflationary whirlpool and a flurry of neoliberal economic decisions which when deployed en masse were often called Fuji shock, actually helped slow and then stop that spiral, eventually restoring some semblance of economic stability and balance, bringing the country's economy back into alignment with that of the rest of the world. That said, part of how he accomplished this was essentially killing off all the country's social programs, eliminating all exchange controls, dramatically reducing government spending and employment, and reducing restrictions on pretty much all investment and money-related things. After a period of moderate success economically, if not socially, the Fujimori administration 
was gridlocked in Congress, so he carried out what became known as the Fujimorazo, a self-coup that basically allowed him to shut down Congress, suspend the Constitution, and purge the judiciary of all the people who wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do. And all of this happened with the support of the military. So the military overthrew the government with his permission, which kept him at the top, but then allowed him to rebuild the rest of the country's power structure more to his liking. Despite how shocking that might sound, it would seem, and outside analysts have said that poll numbers from this period seem legitimate, it would seem that most Peruvians actually thought the coup was a good idea and welcomed the clearing out of what they considered to be entrenched interests and people who were standing in the way of progress. The international community was not as keen on the idea. And many of Peru's South American neighbors cut off diplomatic ties with the Fujimori government. Major economic players around the world cut off monetary support for the country, and there were quite a few threats and punishments meted out by nations and organizations that wanted to show their support for democracy as opposed to dictatorship, especially in the Western Hemisphere. Fujimori's staunch opposition against the Shining Path a bunch of terrorist communists, basically, however, helped him win back the support of U.S. President George H.W. Bush, and a 1993 Peruvian constitutional reform allowed Fujimori to run for a second term, and he won that second term in 1995 by a landslide in a seemingly legitimate election. During that second term, though, Fujimori became increasingly authoritarian, in his efforts, taking away local universities' autonomy and booting people who didn't seem to support him from the National Electoral Board. There were also hints of rumors that Fujimori had been using the Peruvian National Intelligence Service to maintain control over the military, and that he was involved in what eventually became a major scandal, the forced sterilization of hundreds of thousands of indigenous women between 1996 and 2000 as part of a government-sanctioned population control program. The new constitution limited presidents to serving two terms, but Fujimori got Congress to approve a special law that basically allowed him, and only him, to defy that limitation and to run again in 2000. This time around, though, there was no landslide in his favor, and he ended up in a runoff, but both votes were riddled with irregularities and accusations of fraud, and much of the international community took this to mean that his win was illegitimate, and in some cases refused to recognize it. Video evidence of a bribe that had convinced an opposition politician to cross over to Fujimori's side eventually reduced his support to low enough numbers that he had to promise to shut down the country's intelligence service and to call a new election in which he would not run. Shortly after that hullabaloo and that promise, though, he visited Brunei to attend an economic conference, and while he was out of the country, he lost a vote of confidence. Consequently, instead of returning to Peru after the conference, he flew straight to Japan resigned as president of Peru via fax machine, 
Congress refused to accept that faxed resignation, and they voted to remove him from office instead. And his people throughout the government started to resign, one by one, over the course of the following week or so. This is important context, because Keiko Fujimori, Alberto's daughter, was involved in some of his political machinations. Initially, then pushing back against his announcement that he would run for a third term in office, but then changing her mind and working on his campaign. She also became First Lady of Peru for a while, after a messy divorce left her father, Alberto, without a wife while in office. And eventually, after getting her MBA in the U.S. and getting married, she returned to Peru to basically rev up her father's remaining supporters for a planned return to power, which Alberto really seemed to believe would work because he flew into Chile from Japan so that he would be ready to cross back into Peru when the political soil was properly tilled. But he was arrested shortly after landing by Interpol. He had a warrant out for his arrest in Peru ever since he left for that ill-fated conference in Brunei, and that's why he had stuck around Japan for so long. His intended announcement that he would be running for president in 2006 then was derailed by this arrest, and to those loyal followers who had intended to help him run under a new banner, that of the Alliance for the Future Party, chose Keiko to run instead. She was pretty good at getting rallies together, but didn't do great in that or the next presidential election in which she was a candidate. And she ran on a platform that was essentially her father's platform 2.0. But she kept getting caught up in scandals, many of which seemed to be of her own making, and some of which stuck to her, because the scandals orbited around people in her campaign or her allies from donations from shady people, to intense fear-mongering-based political messaging, to accusations of general corruption across their careers. She did quite a bit better in terms of voter numbers in the 2016 election, but more scandals and corruption accusations aimed at her and her allies knocked her out of first place, though she still claimed 49.88% of the total vote. So it was a very close thing, despite all of that. In 2018, she was arrested for charges related to money laundering in support of her father shortly after he was arrested. The case dragged on for another two years, and she ended up with a 15-month prison sentence after all was said and done. But she was released on bail after only about a month. She threw herself back into politics for the 2021 general election, saying that she wanted to be a president with a heavy hand and would empower law enforcement and build more prisons in order to get things done alongside a stimulus check for voters that would account for about 3% of the country's total GDP. A lot of crime fighting and free money, basically. Although a majority of people who were polled said that they would not vote for her when she announced her candidacy. By early 2021, she was polling at or near the lead of all 18 contenders. Ultimately, Castillo came out ahead, with the final numbers reading 50.13% of valid votes for Castillo compared to 49.87% for Fujimori, which came out to a difference of just 44,263 votes, a very small gap. 
and that allowed Fujimori to make accusations of voter fraud, which drew the process of declaring Castillo the victor out for over a month. Now, she has since said that she accepts the decision, but she still maintains without evidence that thousands of votes were fraudulent. It is not clear, as of the day I'm recording this, whether Castillo's seeming shift toward the center was just a ploy to capture undecided voters who were afraid of his seeming far-leftist leanings, or if he genuinely made an ideological shift that will shape how he governs Peru. There have been rumors that Castillo may face a coup by the military now that he's been declared president-elect, and a letter that was signed by nearly 100 retired Peruvian military officers called on current military leaders not to recognize the legitimacy of his presidency, which is something that could very much lead to a coup, though there's no evidence that any current military leaders have taken this letter and its message seriously. Quite a few leftist leaders around the world have celebrated this victory, and democratic governments are celebrating a peaceful transition of power, even in the face of what seemed to be all of the necessary ingredients for something far less peaceful. Concerns remain, though, that Castillo might try to revivify some of his predecessor leftist leaders' legislation, and in doing so, could tip the country back into some kind of inflationary spiral. It's not clear that this would definitely happen should he attempt such a move, but it's also not clear that he will attempt such a move. This is one of the many concerns that were often brought up by Fujimori's campaign, and it may have been more of a political messaging thing than a real legitimate potentiality. All that said, there's a lot of uncertainty in the region right now, and although a change from the status quo and a victory by someone who seems to have climbed up to the top out of nothing are both being welcomed by many people in a country that is still quite poor by global standards, there's a lot that could go wrong as well, and plenty of historical precedent for exactly that. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order by Judith Flanders. This is a topic that I don't think I'd ever given serious thought to before, but this is a book written by a historian who is both a skilled writer and someone who knows what she's talking about that gets into the different ways that we have organized information over the course of human history and how we eventually arrived, for some purposes at least, at alphabetical order, and what that originally looked like and why it functions the way that it does. There is a whole lot more to this topic than I would have guessed going into reading this book, so if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order by Judith Flanders. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can sign up to receive an email from me each morning in which I curate and summarize the news for you at onesentencenews.com. 
www.colinwrightonfacebook.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.